Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Raptors Over Everything podcast. I'm your host, William Liu. On this week's show, we have Raptors broadcasting legend Jack Armstrong. Jack, thanks for your time. William. Uh, how you doing? Great to see you. And uh, legend, the checks in the mail. So thanks for that lie. Uh, so, uh, uh, but I appreciate it and uh, really happy to be on with you. I always enjoy sitting chatting hoops with you. So uh, it's a pleasure to be on and it's a pleasure to be talking basketball. Yeah, for sure. Uh, first off, the people got to know, how are you keeping up? Uh, what's life been like for you during the shutdown? Uh, actually, uh, been keeping busy, uh, both the folks at uh, MLSE and at TSN have kept me busy, uh, uh, you know, obviously TV wise with a number of different, uh, requests every day and, uh, radio shows and, uh, things for corporate sponsors and, and to the like. So I uh, actually, I've kept quite busy. I've been doing a lot of speaking as well, uh, you know, for different uh, companies and, uh, you know, town halls. Uh, I've spoken to a lot of teams. Uh, a lot of teams are doing uh, right now where they have team meetings and then they'll have a guest speaker. So I've spoken for a lot of uh, different teams. Um, so to me, I, I've really in, in enjoyed that element of it, uh, kind of learning. Uh, I'm not a big technology guy, so to have to figure out Zoom and Skype and DeGero and WebEx and all these mm -hmm. other things, because um, everyone has a different one, of course. No one can all have the same thing. So uh, uh, that, that would make too much sense. <laughs> exactly. So it, it's uh, it's been a good learning experience. Um, obviously, it's 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 been a difficult time in the world uh, with the pandemic, which is is so sad and so unfortunate. And then uh, all the, the unfortunate incident in in, uh, in Minneapolis and Atlanta, and we've had so many other. Uh, just horrible instances of of uh, racial strife and uh, people just not figuring out how to get along. So uh, that stuff really bothers me. Um, and I just try to keep busy. I, I, I you know, I ran this morning and uh, I try to get out and play golf once in a while and tennis once in a while. And uh, so overall, I feel like I'm doing good. I'm blessed. And, uh, you know, thoughts and prayers to people uh, uh, who, who have it a lot worse than you and I, that's for sure. Yeah, definitely. I think, uh, honestly, if, if, if you are just bored at this time, uh, during this really, really difficult period in the world, then you're probably very lucky, right? I mean, a, a lot of people are losing their jobs and, and, you know, the economy is taking a huge hit. Uh, and on top of everything else that's going on, I mean, um, you know, f for you and everything like that, it's, it's been okay, uh, in, in your area, in terms of cases, everything like that, you're all right. Yes, I'm actually, I'm in, uh, I live right across from Niagara Lake. Uh, mm. I live uh, Queenston Heights, Niagara Lake. So I live uh, in Lewiston, New York. My backyard is on the Niagara River. I can see Canada. Uh, okay. 400 yards from me. Uh, literally, I'm on the border. Uh, so our area right here, west of New York, which would be, you know, constitute Buffalo, uh, is in phase three already. Oh, okay, good. Uh, so things are progressing uh, well. 
And, um, you know, knock wood, it continues to improve and it continues to improve all around uh, North America and all around the world. So uh, obviously, as we know, uh, we need, you know, treatments that work and ultimately we need a vaccine uh, that, that, that really would uh, will, will help uh, eliminate it. So uh, until that time, uh, I think we're all dealing with kind of a new reality. Uh, what that reality is, as we know, uh, it kind of is different every day because uh, it's kind of a moving target. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, I, I think uh, you do the best you can on a daily basis. I try myself to try to have a daily plan of different things that I'm doing that day. And I think the more structured I am, the, the less uh, I le- allow that other stuff, the anxiety and the, uh, on the unknown to affect me. Right. I think that's very smart. Um, you know, we're recording this on the day, uh, the one year anniversary of the, uh, the parade, which is actually, I mean, with all the, in, in Toronto, that's still, uh, solidly social distancing and everything is still in effect. People are wearing masks and things like that. To think back on one year ago when there was like 3 million people packed into the streets of downtown Toronto. Um, uh, I got, I got to ask you like some of the happier memories from, from last year around this time in terms of celebrating, in terms of calling, uh, the Raptors winning the championship, everything like that. What are some of your favorite memories from a year ago? Well, I, the parade itself, I mean, the, the, the weather that day was spectacular. Oh, my God. It was, it was beautiful. Like, you couldn't script it any better. And I remember uh, after I worked the parade, uh, and we were there. It was like I felt like it was on the Jerry Lewis telephone. It was so long. Um, <laughs> hopefully they get barricades the next time the Raptors win so people can't crush the street and actually yeah. call- – the cars can proceed at a normal pace. Um, but obviously, there hasn't been a big parade since 1993 with the Blue Jays. So, mm-hmm. uh, But now they have an idea that maybe you need to move the parade along a little quicker. But uh, nonetheless, I, I remember after the parade ended, walking down uh, Young Street uh, with one of my television colleagues. And uh, I had, you know, there was no way you could Uber or take a taxi. Oh, no, no. And I'm wearing a suit with no tie. And, and now, you know, everyone's kind of recognizing you and they all want a picture. So uh, my buddy uh, who I work with was, was, hyster- was dying hysterically laughing because I said, look, keep your head down and keep walking because these people are going to know me. So and when they ask for a picture, I'm just going to say, sure, just walk with me. And I'll take the picture, but never stop. Because the minute you uh-huh. stop, you'll never get out of there. And I had a party I had to go to, and I can't miss the party, obviously. So yeah, well. I, took a, I took a ton of pictures as I walked down Young Street, but I never stopped. So uh, uh, that was an accomplishment in and of itself. But it was just uh, a joyous occasion. It was just so much excitement uh, and kind of that moment where you're just constantly pinching yourself saying, is this really happening. Uh, I went for a run that morning and uh, there was a, a guy out running along Lake Ontario and the guy was wearing a Raptors uh, championship t-shirt. I don't know, mm-hmm. you know, they got, they sold them, you know, online. I don't know where oh, they got them. But... I, I think every single person in, in Canada got one of those t-shirts. <laughs> so here I am just a few days after the Raptors win and I'm uh-huh. running in the morning before the parade and I'm like, really? Did that really happen? Like, and then you go to a parade with 3 million people. You're like, is this really happening? 
So actually, it, it, it really didn't all sink in until like opening night against New Orleans where the banner went up and, uh, you know, the players and the coaches and the executives and owners got the rings. And then you're like, wow, it did happen. That banner's there forever. So uh, wonderful memories. Um, oh, speaking of the ring, you got a ring, right? Yes. Where do, where do you keep your ring? I'm, I'm not trying to steal or anything. It, but, I uh... keep it locked up. I, actually, I wore it uh, the other night on Saturday. Uh, my next door neighbor had a social distancing cocktail party. So okay. uh, I, I wore my ring that night because uh, it was a one year anniversary. Uh, so, you know, obviously you spend the whole night with the ring off. Everyone's handing it around and taking pictures yeah, yeah. with it and all that. But it's, it's really fun. And I, I've only worn it a few times. Uh, but when you do wear it, I mean, it's just a remarkable thing. And, you know, obviously it's my 22nd year with the Raptors. So, uh, I mean, the, the joy that I get from that is the joy I see in, in the faces of the fans and so many loyal uh, fans across the country that just love basketball. And I was asked a question the other day, Wayne, about, you know, when Kawhi Leonard, uh, you know, the whole free agency stuff last year and him being followed and the helicopters and the, and the craziness of that. Uh, and people obviously see the whole Kawhi thing as a disappointment that he left. And, and I, I, it, it was very disappointing. At the same time, to his credit, he was a true blue pro. He delivered the goods. He came in from start to finish and did the right things and said the right things. And I give the guy credit. And you know what? You know, it was his decision to go home. Uh, that's, his, that's his right. Uh, but nonetheless, the thing that jumps out at me is that that craziness of the helicopter was almost like the OJ car chase. <laughs> I was um, going to say, yeah. It, it told me right there, uh, like, this thing is amazing. Like, across Canada, uh, people love basketball. So, like, not only do you win a championship, but you see the aftermath with that free agency chase. And uh, the fact that, you know, the, the, the images uh, and, and the excitement uh, – if you're a kid in your teens or you're a kid and you're, you're eight, nine, 10 years old and you're, you're swept up in this stuff, you know, it, as we go along 10, 20, 30 years from now, those are the future consumers in Canada and they're basketball fans. So to me, I, I feel like our sports in really good shape. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the example I always bring up is my, uh, my little brother, he's 10 years younger than me. So he's uh, 17 and I mean, you know, he was he was a basketball fan because I was always a basketball fan. And so he followed it because I was always around him. But um, last year, especially with the Raptors going all the way, I mean, he is just so excited about basketball now. Uh, you know, we, we, we get together occasionally to hang out. Of course, you know, distance and stuff like that. And one of the ways we do that is, we, you know, we, we, we shoot some hoops or whatever. And we, we spent like a solid 15 minutes trying to recreate uh, the Kawhi shot, which obviously is impossible. That thing is, <laughs> there's no way to do that. Um, it's hard enough to hit a baseline follow-in in the first place. Um, but he's just so into basketball now. I mean, he's he's always coming to me and asking me about Chris Bosh and making me feel old. Like He's like, what was Chris Bosh like? And I was like, well, he's good. Um, left-handed. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that's exactly the kind of people you're talking about, right? There's going to be this huge new generation of basketball, and it's it's only going to grow from here. So that's fantastic. And so, you know, on, on the subject of basketball, um, you know, before we talk about the Raptors and, and everything that's going on, there seems to be... So the NBA has a plan for returning, and it it doesn't seem to, um, 
it doesn't seem to have less momentum behind the plan. I think the plan is, you know, uh, seems like the players want to execute it. But there, there is a certain faction of players who are concerned about sort of health concerns and also that there's another section that is concerned uh, of the NBA's return detracting from uh, some of the attention going to the protests. Um, just for you personally, where do you stand on the league's return? And, and have you seen some of the details of, uh, you know, what it's going to look like? Well, I think from a medical perspective, I think the league and their teams have taken every step possible uh, to try to make sure to do this right. Dot all the I's, cross all the T's. I mean, you're talking about the NBA with the uh, ability to, to draw in uh, and, and, and utilize uh, people that are world-class experts in the medical field. And then every team has their own medical staff. Every team has their own uh, – you know, training staff. So I think they're doing everything possible. Is it perfect? Probably not. Every, you know, it's perfectly imperfect. But nonetheless, I think uh, the, the effort and the, and the uh, willingness to, to be open-minded and to try to make this thing work, uh, I, I think is all there. So I applaud that. Uh, do I think the NBA coming back, uh, you know, obviously is there a financial element there? Yeah. But if you look at the cost of putting this whole thing on in Orlando, uh, not only to each team but to the league itself, uh, and, and then when you do the when you do the accounting after the fact, uh, the the ability to get the game back in in the in the eyes of the public is is paramount. Uh, I don't think they're going to make the money that everyone thinks they're going to make uh, because the expense of putting this on is going to be dramatic. Uh, and, and I think people are, are missing the, missing that a little bit. So uh, this is more about getting the, the you know getting a, a public that has been denied uh, a lot of things, unfortunately, an opportunity to maybe enjoy something uh, positive. Uh, I think from a standpoint of the social unrest and the racial issues, I stand behind the protests. I, I agree with with their their mission and there's and what they're trying to do, and I think it's great. Uh, as you know, I'm the father of three African American boys, so to me, it, you know, I'm, I'm super sensitive to it. And you know, I've grown up in the sport of basketball, and our sport is predominantly black. So uh, I get it. I totally get it. And I totally respect it. And again, for my own family situation, uh, it's deeply personal. Uh, so I respect what the guys are saying. And I look at both schools of thought. And I would say I would, I would side on the school of thought that I, I really feel confident that the NBA community will embrace it. I think they'll use the platform and the forum uh, to get the proper messages and the right messages out uh, that are going to talk about equality and unity and respect uh, and, and to me, I think it's a great uh, platform to do it. Uh, I, I, so I would probably side, if I had to choose a, a side, I would choose at LeBron James's side, where he feels like our sport is important and his message uh, gains uh, strength uh, because of what he does for a living and the impact it has and the eyeballs it gets. And, you know, when you look at a guy like LeBron James, you can have any opinion you want. Michael Jordan, who's better, uh, all this stuff, uh, you know, all those different things. But to me, uh, 
I'm I'm of the I'm of the belief that uh, you know this guy's done the right stuff off the court. He's a good son. He's a good husband. He's a good father, and he's done an amazing amount in the community and used his stardom to help others. So I I think that if if we don't have NBA basketball, and you're a player and you're at a protest, uh, that's great. Uh, in a lot of ways, though, you become John Q. Public. You're, you're, you're just with other people. I think if you are in a place where you can get your message out uh, loud and clear in the NBA community uh, to get to united together, I think it's going to help. And, and to me, uh, that's an important element of it that I, I, I hope that guys ultimately embrace. And from a social media perspective, I mean, you could put your message out anywhere you are. So you could be, uh, you could be in Orlando, you could be in Oshkosh, uh, you could be in Oslo, wherever. Uh, you can get your message out. So uh, to me, I, I'm on the side of, of the fact that if they're, if they're going to be able to play, uh, let's play. And, and through playing, let's make sure we use that platform uh, to really educate people and try our best to unite people uh, to see the light. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think the NBA is actually doing the right thing here in the sense that they're allowing, you know, if, if some players don't feel comfortable, if they feel more comfortable using their platform to sit out, if they feel more comfortable being at home because of the health concerns or because of how much time it would take away physically just from their regular lives and from their family, then the NBA seems to be allowing them to do that, which is, I think, the right thing to do. Um, one question I thought of in terms of just uh, maybe in the, the media perspective is how is this going to work for for some of you guys? And, and uh, I guess there's there's been no real updates given for what uh, what writers will do. I, I doubt we'll be going to Orlando, but what, what's it going to look like for you guys on the TV I, side? I would I don't really have an answer to that yet. I don't know. I don't know. I, I my guess is based upon what Kevin Harlan from Turner said last week. Uh, he said, like, and, and Turner and, and Disney, obviously, ABC, ESPN, they gave the league a nine-year, $24 billion U.S. TV deal. So they're like the partners. And mm. Kevin, Harlan, Kevin Harlan mentioned last week that Turner's going to be calling games from the Atlanta studio, and maybe they would go for the conference finals. They don't carry the NBA finals. ABC mm. does in the States. Uh, but he wasn't even sure if that was going to happen. So if, if, if that's happening with Turner, I would imagine when you start looking at the 30 teams and you start looking at, uh, you know, a writer from, uh, the, you know, the Toronto Star or the uh, New York Times or the Chicago Tribune or the L.A. Times or the Washington, whatever. I mean, I, I, I'd be shocked. Uh, that, you know, you're going to have a, a significant number of media people. Plus with the fact that the, each team's going to have a very, very small, limited travel mm-hmm. party, and they're going to really uh, limit the scope of who is in the bubble. Uh, I think if you're a writer, uh, you know, the access you're going to have is minimal. Uh, oh, yeah. So you could do the same job from where you are currently then if you were physically standing in Orlando, you'll get no closer to the player than you would sitting in your own apartment right now in Toronto. So I don't know the answers. I haven't been told anything yet. Uh, but when I heard Kevin Harlan's com- uh, read Kevin Harlan's comments last week, and that's like the one of the two big, big uh, media partners of the league, um, 
I'd be surprised if there's a lot of people there. You know, and now obviously the fact that it's on a Disney property and ESPN is part of that. You know, would you see a Stephen A. Smith or Adrian Wojciechowski or someone like that? Uh, whatever. But they're going to have to make that decision too. Do they want to be in the bubble uh, for three months? You know, that's a lot, a lot of time away from family. So uh, that, that'll be an interesting dynamic. Uh, now, put yourself in Nick Nurse's shoes for a second. Um, how, as a coach, how would you prepare your team for something like this? I'm, I'm not sure if you've you've probably never been anything in no. this kind of scenario whatsoever. But how would you start to approach something like your season gets interrupted, you sit out for three months, and then you're restarting basically an almost a new season with a whole training camp and everything like that uh, before quickly cutting into the playoffs? How would you approach that? Well, first of all, Nick Nurse has the right stuff. Uh, he's a terrific coach. Uh, we've seen that in his uh, mm. almost two years. I mean, he's the, in my opinion, he's the NBA coach of the year based upon all the uh, twists and turns and the ups and downs the Raptors had to deal with this year with, uh, with all the injuries and have the third best record in the league and the second best record in the East is an amazing accomplishment. This guy can really coach. Uh, with that being said, I, just, I think his experience as a coach in Europe, mm-hmm. I think his experience as a, a coach in the G League, D League, uh, I think he's well-suited for uh, a unique scenario like this because he's coached that way before. The thing I admire most about Nick above any, everything else, he's not one of those coaches that talks about what he doesn't have. He mm-hmm. focuses on what he does have. So I think he's going to look constantly uh, at at being progressive, uh, focusing on what he controls, and not worry about what he can't control. So the things you can control are – and I've talked to Nick about this a few different times because I've done some events with him uh, for the Raptors and asked him some of these questions and chatted with him about it. Uh, You know, I I think they're going to really focus on, again – they're a sound defensive team. I think he's going to really continue to build on those principles and, and, have, and, and have a sound base defensively. And I think he's also very cognizant of the fact, and I've been through two lockouts, 98-99, uh, my first year with the Raptors, Vince Carter's rookie year, and then the 2011-2012 lockout where we had 66 games. And I think if you study those two elements, a 50-game season and a 66-game season, and right now we're in the mid-60s in terms of games, but now we're going into a new crazy scenario. Offense really struggles. Mm. Execution team-wise, cutting, movement, spacing, screening, uh, crispness of passes, timing, flow. And secondly, uh, conditioning, offensive conditioning. That I, I run a staggered screen for you, And I get you open with four on the shot clock in the fourth quarter with three and a half minutes to play. Do you have the shooting fitness to make that shot? You know, and being through two lockouts, uh, there was some ugly basketball because guys don't have the jump, Mm -hmm. the the flow, the mojo to make those plays and kind of teams get bogged down in the mud. Uh, So if you're sound defensively, and you can kind of jumpstart your offense from your defense and getting the running game going. I think mm-hmm. that, number one, that's important. 
And two, I think the teams that really focus hard on uh, getting good flow and good execution going, and then guys, under, you know, a, a major emphasis on getting guys in great uh, offensive fitness shape uh, is going to be a, a big part of it. And I, I look at the fact that the Raptors have chemistry, they have role definition, they have veteran players, uh, they have smart players, uh, they've won, they know what the deal is, uh, they got excellent coaches. I feel like uh, – they have a lot of good ingredients in place. And if they're healthy, uh, they're a contender. If they're mm-hmm. fully healthy and stay fully healthy, uh, they are a legitimate contender. Uh, will, will they win it? I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. I don't have a mm-hmm. clue what this is all going to look like, but I do think they're a contender. Yeah, I mean, uh, Bobby Webster was on TV the other day, and he kind of made this point about how, you know, Nick with his sort of very innovative um, style of coaching, you know, uh, having many tricks in the bag, sort of different defensive looks to go to and things like that. I, I think that might favor the Raptors in, in a in a limited tournament like this, where, as you mentioned, defensively, um, you know, that that's where you're going to have the advantage. You know, defense travels on the road, and you're literally on the road the whole time. You, know, you bring up a good point. That's why I raised my hand. I was just going to touch exactly on what you said. Um, because the one thing, the one element I've had a problem with with all this, and it's kind of, no one's really – they've talked about it a little bit, but not enough. And I've talked – I've brought it up to Bobby Webster. I've brought it up to Nick Nurse. Uh, I think the really good teams in our league in this concept, uh, I would, you know, the advantage is – think about it. When we had the 66-game lockout in 2011-12, we had one through eight, and the top four seeds in each conference got home court. Well, we played 64, 65 games so far. Mm-hmm. What are they getting? You know? so, <laughs> the best hotels, all right? The best yeah, Mickey Mouse uh, impersonators. Right, big deal. You know, like, so to me, uh, what, you know, I, I haven't heard anything yet. Is there going to be any benefit for these teams in game? Mm-hmm. Uh, so here's the question, and I think it's an important one. You look at the Raptors, and now we're talking neutral court. There's no home court. It's all seeding now. Who were the best road teams in the NBA this year? And I always say the contending teams are the teams with the best road records, Mm. the true contenders. I think in a situation like this now, I think your habits are who you are. And now where there's no stimuli, where you have fans in in effect, uh, I think really has an impact on things. So if you do your research and look at who the top road teams were this year, I think those are the teams, in my opinion, that are the best equipped because they're good at home, they're good on the road, and I think they'll be good on neutral. You know, well, that's I mean, my opinion. Well, I mean, to your point, um, the Raptors this year, despite all the injuries, and remember, the Raptors, aside from OG and Obi. The top eight guys in the rotation, every single player outside of OG missed at least 10 games. So it's, it's very difficult to coach in that situation. The Raptors are 23 and nine on the road, just like they're 23 and nine at home. What does to that compare that? Well, the Bucks are only, the Bucks, I mean, the Bucks are like six and a half games above the Raptors. They're 25 and nine. So they're barely, they're only a game better than the Raptors 
uh, on the road. And you compare that, you know, the Raptors have a better road record than the Celtics. Uh, way better than Miami, who's 14 and 19 on the road. Uh, Philly this year, 10 and 24 on the road. They're just horrendous away from home. Uh, fantastic game, uh, fantastic team in Philly though. Um, and then you look in the West. I mean, you know, only the Lakers at 26 and 6 have a better uh, road record than the Raptors. So we're talking about the Raptors. I mean, it's not a surprise because they're the third best record in the NBA anyway, but they're the third best road team. And, 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 uh, you know, to, to your point, um, last year <laughs> in the finals, I mean, they, they win three straight games in Golden State. They, they were, they were 4 and 0 on Oracle last year before that arena shut down. And, um, yeah, they definitely they have won, that ability. And they won two road games in Orlando. They won a yep. road game in Philly. And they won a mm-hmm. road game in Milwaukee. And so to me, uh, there, there's something about uh, the makeup of the group, there's the makeup of the coaching staff that gives me calm, that gives me confidence. Does it tell me, hey, they're the, they're the champ? There's a lot of good teams. We'll find that out. I just mm-hmm. think that they can go into this experience saying, you know what? We've proven ourselves in every venue. This is a new venue, uh, but I think habits travel. You know, what's the old line? Aristotle or Socrates, excellence, excellence is a habit, not an act. You know, there are, you've mentioned some actors, and then you've mentioned some teams that have habits. Um, you know, you look at a team like Philadelphia, they're amazing. Are they a team that feeds off the stimulus of playing at home? And maybe, or what are they away from home? Are they actors or is it habit? You know, like, you know, so uh, that's a true test for Brett Brown now and, and their team. Uh, they got great talent. I, I think they're, you know, they're, I don't want to play them. Who wants to play Phil? They're, they're loaded with talent. They're a terrific team. Uh, but, but for themselves, if I'm Philadelphia and I'm Brett Brown and my coaching staff, those are the things I'm going, we got to get, our, we got to be, tight our habits mm-hmm. gotta be tight we gotta be sound because it doesn't matter it, it, it's all neutral now we gotta be this is who we gotta be uh so to me I, I think that's an important element but i go back to what i said before what as a league are we doing for the teams that have earned something mm-hmm. the, the lockout season they earned something they got something what are we doing for them now? I, I don't. I, that, that's still a question that needs to be answered. Yeah, and that's where, I mean, some of the proposals that have been reported. I mean, they, they sound a little gimmicky, like you know, extra coaches challenges, or uh, you can designate one player on the team that gets seven fouls instead of six, or you get the ball to start, you know, uh, the second, third, and fourth quarter, and you get, I guess, two extra possessions that way. Um, you know, I mean, that all seems kind of a little gimmicky to me and, and maybe uh, marginal, but um, it might just be a situation where it, there, there is not a great answer. I mean, Nick was asked about this in a, in a conference call with reporters, and, and he talked about how, you know, Nick's always got stories from Belgium, and <laughs> any, any chance he gets, he'll tell you something about Belgium or the, the Great Britain or, or Iowa or something like that. But, you know, he mentioned where he, he coached in Belgium where it was four tiers, four divisions, and uh, he was obviously coaching a Tier 1 team. And he had to face a tier four team. And the way they did it was the tier four team got like a 30 point advantage. So they were up 30 to nothing to start the game. <laughs> and and, uh, and Nick had to coach his way out of that. So, I mean, that's that's almost like the opposite scenario where you're giving the you lower know, and, teams and I, and I an extra 10 the, points. Yeah. And I brought up the point in the first round after we play eight games, you know, regular season games. And now the top four seeds in a best of seven series, you've only got to win three. 
And the other guy's got to still win his four. You know, so uh, after the first round, uh, do we reseed or do we stay in a bracket format? You know, like those mm-hmm. are – I just think that's the, that kind of stuff needs to you – know, people would say that's crazy, you know, that you only have to win three out of seven. Well, guess what? Why are we playing eight regular season games? If, if the regular season's unimportant, why are we throwing mm-hmm. eight more games in? Why are we bringing the Phoenix Suns and the Washington Wizards? <laughs> I was going to say. Seriously. But if we're going to – why are we not having that discussion? I, uh-huh. re- I really believe that. And, and I yeah. think that – you know, what What are we doing for the, the Lakers, the Bucks, the Clippers, the Raptors, teams like that? What are we doing for those teams? You know, and, and they've earned that. I mean, yeah. and maybe eight games later, there might be one of those teams that gets surpassed by somebody. Maybe, maybe not. But what are we doing for those teams? They've earned something. If not, let's not play regular season games, right? I mean, look, that's a, that's a very fair point. Um, but, you know. The Raptors uh, fighting an uphill battle. I guess it's not necessarily, um, you know, that out of the question and that unordinary. Um, you know, to your point earlier about um, offensive execution being a little bit behind defensive execution in a situation like this, I, I think that's where um, having a guy like Marcus Hall back uh, and and hopefully fully healthy and ready to go. It seems like you know he's he's really taken a professional approach to quarantine. I mean, I'm not sure if you've seen some of the pictures. Mark looks almost like a different person, really. He looks extremely slimmed down. Um, you know, I, I think with Marcus all fully healthy and back on the Raptors, I, I think first off, we haven't actually seen, in my opinion, the very, very best version of Marcus all with the Raptors yet in this, in his, in his two years. Obviously it's hard to argue against a championship, but you know, I think mostly it's it, the defense has been great. The passing has been great. It's the it's the scoring that necessarily hasn't been there the last two years as it was with Memphis. Um, I I feel like you know with the Marcus all back into this team back into the starting lineup um, that activates so much and I think it just helps you to have uh, more playmakers in a time where you do have limited time to prepare and and, and uh, get ready. Having a guy like Mark who can stretch the floor, who can set screens, who can pass, orchestrate your offense that's got to be huge. No, you're right. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I, uh, when I was a young coach, I was in a, a clinic and Bobby Knight, uh, the Hall of Fame coach from Indiana, who I, I actually had the good fortune to coach against him. Uh, I also recruited his son, Patrick, who ended up playing for Bob at, at Indiana. But uh, I'll never forget at the clinic, a coach raised his hand and said, you know, if I have an early season tournament, maybe a little earlier than everybody else, uh, and I only have a little bit of practice time, how should I get ready for that early season game? And his thing was offense is always behind defense. He goes, and if you want to be really good, he goes, spend some extra time on your offense because mm. other teams are going to be way behind on it. If you can just be simplistic defensively and have your base coverages down and then really try to the, – the offensive elements I mentioned before, well, then the point you made about Marcus Ole, he adds to all that stuff that you just mentioned and all the things I mentioned earlier about flow and spacing. And, you know, he's a five-man who could shoot the three, so he spreads the floor. His screening, his passing, the improv ability where mm-hmm. now you give him the ball, there's nine on the shot clock, cut, 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 screen, cut, boom, bang. He'll get somebody a shot with three on the shot clock because – uh, it has nothing to do with execution. It has everything to do with the fact that you're adding another guy with an awareness level that he, you know, there is a, 
It's like football. Uh, the thing I love, uh, they have that all 22 where the quarterback drops back. And now, you know, on a Monday morning, you can evaluate uh, the reads of your quarterback, you know, the decisions mm-hmm. that they make and the coverages that they make and sometimes blitz reads and, you know, all those different things, double coverage on a top receiver. And I think the best quarterbacks uh, see, they see, they have great vision. And they recognize and diagnose things quickly. And I look at a guy like Marcus Soul, he knows what the other nine guys are doing. Mm. And I think when things go wacky, and a lot of times at the back end of the clock, which is red alert time, things get a little goofy. Uh, do you have calm guys? You have guys that in unstructured offense can make something happen. Can you get mm. a high percentage shot? Having Marcus Gasol on the floor within that offensive scheme in an environment that probably will get bogged down in fitness issues for teams and flow issues offensively, uh, it's nice to have another guy like that. Yeah, and um, you know, one of my favorite plays, I've been watching so many plays from last year's uh, playoff run. One of my favorite plays is just, I think uh, Mark had the ball up top and he just gave Kawhi this like nod. He just went like, you know, go, go. And then uh, he slips his pass. Kawhi's darting to the rim, and he gets a he gets a dunk on Giannis and one. And it's just you know, um, yeah, Marcus. It's a, it's an incredible luxury to have. Uh, moving to some of the to younger guys, um, you know, you, you've seen a lot of guys this year take a step forward, and and you know, the Raptors with OG Ananobi, Pascal Siakam, Norman Powell, Fred VanVleet. This young core has really uh, emerged from sort of where they were a couple years ago, sitting on the bench watching some of these guys. Uh, ahead of them to being those guys and being the core of a team that uh, t- that wins. I mean, out of those four, OG, Pascal, Norm, and Fred, which which one to you uh, has made the biggest jump um, in, in their career this season? Well, obviously, uh, I think uh, you could see Fred Van Vliet uh, really coming through late in the, in the mm-hmm. playoffs last year, and you saw Siakam blow up last year in the playoffs as well. So I think that was a, a trend that was already on its way. Uh, I said at the beginning of the season, uh, before we even played games, that the two most important guys for the Raptors this year were Norm Powell and OG Ananobi. You're replacing Danny Green and you're replacing Kawhi Leonard. I think if you look at what those two guys, I think Norm Powell, you've seen a pretty clear growth. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, at going into the All-Star break, I said uh, – after the, I don't know if it was the last game before the All-Star break, I said the guy that's the most, that has to pick his game up, that has to take that next step after the All-Star break is OG Ananobi. And to me, uh, I really was excited about what I was seeing from OG Ananobi. I don't have the numbers in front of me, mm-hmm. but I was, I was really enjoying what I was seeing from him after the All-Star break. I, I started to see a guy with more of a purpose and a consistency and a, and a levelness about his game that he was really settling into a good groove. So I'm excited about what I'm seeing from Norm Powell and OG Ananobi. I feel bad for Norm with the injuries. Mm-hmm. but uh, And I think it speaks volumes about And I've had this discussion with Masai and Bobby. You know, the reason why the Raptors are good is that the, those four guys you mentioned never got handed a minute. They had to earn it. They had to earn it. Like, they came in, every one of them, and played on good teams. 
So there was, there was good team. There was a good team there. So mm-hmm. I'm like, Hey man, if you're not good enough, you don't play because we're good enough. We're playing without you. We'll find someone else to take your minutes. So uh, to me, I think uh, you look at so many of these bad teams in the NBA that hand these quote unquote name players minutes. And these guys are paper tigers. Uh, they get stats, but they don't win anything. And I think if you look at those four guys, they all impact winning. Now, they might not be as talented a player as uh, the number one pick of a bad team. But nonetheless, the Raptor guys have winning habits because they've had to develop them. They've had to earn their keep in a good organization that's well run with the right philosophy. And these other guys have just earned minutes. They've, they've, they've gotten stats but they, they can't figure out how to win a game when it needs to be won. And to me, I, I think that I'm excited about what I've seen from all four of them. And I, I applaud uh, the mentality uh, of, of and the philosophy of Masai and Bobby and their staff and collectively the partnership when, when Dwayne and his staff were here and now Nick and his staff. They've done an amazing job. And I think Masai's greatest strength is the fact that the guy is amazingly patient. He lets mm-hmm. things breathe. Um, he's an emotional, hard-nosed competitor, which is great. Nonetheless, uh, when it comes time to making evaluations and decisions, he lets things breathe. And I think when you let things breathe and you're not impulsive and reactive, uh, I think guys now have the opportunity to play through mistakes and mature and they don't play looking over their shoulder. They play mm. with confidence. And I, I think when you look at those four players and a lot of other organizations, their growth and improvement would have been derailed because they had a bad game in game 17 and they got buried on the bench in game 18. I don't think you've seen that in, in Masai's uh, uh, tenure. I don't think you've seen Dwayne do it. I don't think you've seen Nick do it. And I think a big reason why these guys have all gotten better is that this is one of the best run organizations in pro sports. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really Spurs-esque, you know, like this is what the Spurs were doing. Um, you know, obviously there's no Tim Duncan and <laughs> Tim Duncan is the number one pick. Uh, so that's, that's a whole different story altogether, but it, it does remind me of, you know, the Spurs getting a guy like Tony Parker, 29th or Mona Ginobili at, at that end of the second round. And, uh, and, and, you know, you compare it to a team like the Knicks, you know, they have a lottery pick every single year and they got all these guys. And when we're talking about OG, Pascal, Norm and Fred, I mean, the highest pick used there was, I think, 23rd on OG Ananobi or maybe 22nd. So we're not exactly talking about like high lottery guys. And, and yet I, I would take the Raptors core over pretty much any core. Um, well, not any core. There's like some really good ones. I think New Orleans has a pretty damn good core, but it's, it's really good. You know, my colleague, Eric Smith, um, he, he made a great point a few months ago. And I was like, man, I, I forgot about this. He said the gravest Vasquez trade is the trade that keeps on giving. <laughs> yeah. Because they got Norm Powell, and then uh-huh. they got the draft rights to OG Ananobi. You know, like, and that was just like a, a forgotten move that two of the four players you just mentioned mm-hmm. uh, were part of that. You know, so to me... Uh, it's it's the execution of the right trade, and then on top of that, the execution of the development plan, which I think uh, you know the, these guys have just done an excellent job, and they they they, they deserve uh, to be commended for. 
Um, now, I'm, I'm taking up a lot of your time, so I'm going to ask you two more questions. Um, one, I wanted to get your thoughts on just the two rookies. You know, um, I mean, I guess there's three rookies this year with Dewan Hernandez as well, but he's been sort of out of the lineup. Uh, the two guys that we've seen actually perform for the big club, Terrence Davis and Matt Thomas, uh, what's one thing about their game that kind of impresses you about both those guys that, you know, uh, people might not notice? Obviously, everyone can see Matt Thomas can shoot. Everyone can see Terrence Davis is athletic. But what's what's one thing, you know, that, that you're seeing that's sort of going under the radar for those, those two guys? Well, first of all, they're both uh, really fine young men, and I, I, I enjoy chatting with them. Uh, I guess the thing that jumps off the page about me about Terrence is uh, there's a spirit there. There's a can-do spirit. Mm. There's a belief. Uh, it's not cocky. It's genuine. It's humble. Uh, it's blue-collar. And he's willing to work. And I, I just love his uh, can-do spirit. And with that spirit, you see uh, that he can, he can get through resiliency. He's had some bad games, but he's also had some great games. Yep. And he doesn't quit on himself. So I like that. Uh, you know, I like that can-do spirit. And I think when Matt Thomas, uh, there was a stretch there where Matt Thomas wasn't playing, and he was healthy, and he wasn't playing much or wasn't playing at all. And I said to him one night, uh, watching him work out before a game, and he was drenched. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that night he didn't play. And I just said to him, the next uh, the next uh, night, it was, it was a back-to-back, whatever. I said, I just want you to know, as a former coach, how impressed I am with your professionalism that uh, you have a, you know, plan, plan your work and work your plan that you come out every night and you are professional and you are prepared. And when your number's called, you're going to be ready. And that's habit. Mm -hmm. Again, I go back to excellence is a habit, not an act. He's not an actor. He's an habitual creature that goes out every night and goes about his business and prepares for his work in terms of his stretching routine, in terms of his approach. And when you are an habitual person and you have good habits, you know, because uh, practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. His work ethic and his practice habits are excellent. So mm-hmm. to me, I think you could throw a guy like that in the game and feel confident because he's ready. So I think those would be the two things that jump out at me about those two guys. And again, on top of that, William, they're breaking in on a winning team. They don't play if they don't get it done. They do play if they do get it done. Whereas you put those guys on a bad team, maybe they'll get minutes, but that lousy environment creates bad habits. And Mm -hmm. I I think if you do a study – of the best teams in all the major sports, I think that's something that really jumps off the page. And again, as a former coach, and I've been involved with really good teams, I've been involved with really bad teams, uh, and somewhere in between. And for my 22 years with the Raptors, I've seen all types of teams. I think what's going on right now in Toronto, and when you look at a kid like Terrence and Matt, uh, they are so fortunate to break in in an environment like this. Uh, and then lastly, um, I had to ask you this because I was doing some research and I was looking at an interview that you did with Eric Kareen of The Athletic. And you, you told a story about how you almost joined the front office uh, with Wayne Embry back in 2006. What's the story there? I mean, that's, 
That would have been very big. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, that was, uh, you know, Wayne and I are very close. And uh, at that time, uh, Rob Babcock's kind of run was coming to an end. And Rob is a wonderful guy who, you know, uh, just gave it his best shot. And it just unfortunately wasn't working out. Uh, and, you know, Wayne and I used to talk a lot. Um, and, you know, I, you know, for my, I don't know, first eight, nine years with the Raptors, you know, I had a lot of people ask me, you're going to go back to coaching college. Would you be interested in being a pro assistant and all that? And every year I got further into it. I had uh, the, the, the interest in coaching, uh, was less and less. I'm like, I don't want to do that anymore. I've done that. And it, it's a grind. Uh, the fascination, though, with um, overseeing a team and building a team and being part of a, a management group uh, to do that, uh, to me, was fascinating. And uh, spending time with Wayne really uh, got me excited about that. Uh, I have a few people that uh, Wayne's a mentor. Uh, Frank Layden, who is the former president, GM, head coach of the Utah Jazz, who built an amazing organization and drafted Carl Malone and John Stockton and hired Jerry Sloan and um, Bill Polian, who's a six-time NFL executive of the year, uh, Hall of Famer, uh, who I'm very close with as well. Uh, and and I, So I've spent a lot of time with Frank. I've spent a lot of time with Bill. Uh, and obviously I was spending a lot of time with Wayne. And those guys would encourage me and say, you know what, you, you should, you know, you'd be really uh, good at that. You know, like maybe you don't want to coach anymore, but if you ever decide to the broadcasting, do something different, consider that. So uh, it just kind of happened where uh, Wayne took over and he wasn't sure if he was going to be the full-time GM or if he was just going to do it on an interim basis. And he had to work that out with, uh, Larry Tannenbaum and Richard Petty, who was the president and CEO at the time. And, uh, but he needed somebody to help him. So, you know, we had the discussion and, and then, uh, the discussion with Larry and Richard and, uh, to their credit, it was very nice of them. You know, they reached out to, uh, you know, the people, my bosses at MLSE and my bosses at the time I was working on the side as well for Rogers. Now I work for TSN and basically said, you know, if, if we bring a new GM in and this guy wants to bring all his own guys in, Jack can have his jobs back on the broadcast side. On the other hand, if Wayne takes the job or the new guy coming in wants to keep him, then, you know, that's, that's great too. Uh, so that was the agreement and I agreed to do it. And then literally within 24 hours, uh, they had to put the brakes on it because I think it's the first time in the history of the NBA that a standing GM left one team to go to another uh, in, in, in the middle of the season. And it's never happened. And that was Brian Colangelo leaving Phoenix in the middle of the season and going to the Toronto Raptors. Uh, and, you know, so at that point, uh, Wayne mentioned to Brian about uh, what we were going to be doing. And Brian, you know, it was, very, it was great. I get along great with Brian. And uh, he had already had kind of the guys he wanted to bring in in mind. Right. Uh, so to me, I had the discussion with Brian. I said, Brian, look, you and I don't know each other very well. And I get it. I've hired. I've fired. I've been there. You want to bring people in that you kind of have a relationship with. And 
that are going to fit your plan. And we'll get to know each other over the years. But nonetheless, you got to bring in the guys that you feel comfortable with. So uh, he did that. And uh, here I am uh, 14 years later, and I've had an amazing time uh, broadcasting. And, you know, that ship has sailed. Uh, you know, at this point in my life, uh, I'm enjoying doing this. Uh, but, yeah, that's a true story. And that did happen. Uh, I don't know how it would have turned out. I probably would have ended up being uh, someday uh, uh, the GM of the Sacramento Kings and gotten fired like every other King GM. So uh, it, would probably, it probably all worked out pretty good that I am where I am. And, uh, but the relationships you develop, and Wayne Embry, uh, no question in my heart, in my mind, is, is one of those guys I look at when I close my eyes, I think about the great people I've met in sports and great mentors in life. Uh, Wayne is right there at the top. Right. For sure. No, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, as a fan, I'm, I'm thrilled to see you on the broadcast every day and, and, and watch you on games and stuff like that. And listen to you. But, you know, a part of me does kind of feel wistful that, uh, you know, I, I just like to imagine you as a Raptors assistant GM, someone calling in with a terrible offer, and you just tell him to get that garbage out of here. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that been... <laughs> well when, I, when I look at the job, Masai and Bobby, Teresa, and uh, Jeff Weltman uh, before, and mm -hmm. uh, the great people they've had in the front office, and, and Brian Colangelo did the best job he could. I, I love Brian. Uh, did a lot of good things, and uh, I had a really good relationship with him and Glenn Grunwald and Rob Babcock and Wayne. And, you know, these pe it's not an easy job. And uh, uh, these people, I have a lot of respect for the job they've done. And the management staff we have now, I mean, they're, they're second to none. They're top notch. For sure. For sure. Uh, Jack, I've taken so much of your time. I really appreciate it. You're definitely one of the most generous and open people in this business. And, uh, I look forward to seeing you on the broadcast and, uh, you know, watching you call games uh, sometime soon. Fingers crossed. William, great to, great to chat with you. I look forward to seeing you soon when things settle down. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.